Most people believe the Holy Spirit exists. But why don't we ever talk about it? We hear about the Holy Spirit, and we sing about the Holy Spirit. But do we understand who He is? The Holy Spirit is not meant to be a mystery. He is a person, not an it. The Holy Spirit isn't just a power source to tap into when we need it. It's about communion with the person. There are many aspects of the Holy Spirit. There's a baptism with the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit. And the truth of who He is is painted throughout the Bible. The Holy Spirit is meant to be a part of our everyday lives. And we are called to live in the supernatural. Well, good morning. Like she said, my name is Mick Murray. I direct the discipleship school, among other sundry things around the church. And I'm with my son Paxton this morning. And here in just a moment, he's going to read the scripture. But before he does, uh, I want to make note of the fact it's not casual Sunday. I'm representing the discipleship school, uh, D-School sweatshirt, because we are in an application cycle. So if you have never done the discipleship school before, many of you have no idea what I'm even talking about, and that's fine. That's why, if you haven't, pull out your phone right now if you have a smartphone and open up the camera app because a QR code is going to come up on the screen. If you're unfamiliar with QR codes, just point your camera app at it. A link will pop up on the screen. Click on it. It'll take you to a website. That's our D-School website. And you'll find all the information there about the discipleship school. And uh, also a, a button that says apply now. Uh, the school starts in August. Applications are open through July 1st. The school exists just to deepen your relationship with Jesus, to equip you for a lifetime of fruitfulness uh, in your relationship with the Lord and service to him. And it's for everybody. It doesn't matter age, stage of life, vocation. Uh, it's designed for everybody. So please check that out and apply by July 1st. Sound good? For three of you, sounds good. Good. All right. Okay, so we are in our Yet For Us series going through 1 Corinthians, if you have been tracking with us for like the past eight months. And as we've done every Sunday through this service, we're going to read our scripture together that kind of unifies this passage, uh, this series for us. So if you'd stand to your feet, I know you just sat down, but just for a moment here, stand to your feet. And Paxton is going to lead out in reading the passage, and you can read along with us. 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. So read along with Paxton. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from who are all, all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is what I believe and what I stand on, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can have a seat. Great job, bud. It's nerve-wracking standing up in front of this many people as a nine-year-old. Great job. Um, Paxton, oh my gosh, as a 10-year-old, as a dad fail. Just got rebuked by my son on stage. We have four boys, 11, 10, 9, and 7, and the 9-year-old was going to read. Anyway, uh, forgive me, Lord. All right. Paxton is also going to read. You don't have to read along with him, but he's going to read our primary text for today, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and verse 58. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, the Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Fantastic. Love you, buddy. Great job. Okay, so today is Palm Sunday. And if you're familiar with the church calendar, you know this is an annual celebration. The church has commemorated for 2,000 years, celebrating the entrance, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And to start today, I'm going to take you into that uh, experience, and I want you to insert yourself as a, a first century Jew living in Jerusalem. So you're going to kind of take on that persona and try to get into the hearts and minds of the people who are experiencing this event of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Does that sound okay? Great. Again, for three of you, it does. For everybody else, just hang with me. All right, so the Jews to this point had been oppressed by the Romans for about 80 years. They were taxed uh, to the point of abject poverty. Uh, they, their lands would be confiscated. Their families broken up when they couldn't pay the taxes. It tore up their agrarian lifestyle. Uh, the court system was unjust, as we see in the, the trial and execution of Jesus himself. And, uh, and they were just generally under oppression. If they rose up against it, there would be mass crucifixions. Uh, many early historians talk about hundreds, if not thousands of people who would be crucified at the same time who stood up to Roman rule. So you've been living in this context, but you are familiar with the scriptures. You've grown up with the Jewish, the Torah, the, what we think of as the Old Testament. And, and you're familiar with the promise of a Messiah, that there would be somebody who would be raised up like Moses, like a new Adam who would deliver the people of Israel. And there was great expectation that this Messiah would deliver the people from Roman oppression. And you've heard of Jesus, this traveling rabbi who has performed incredible miracles. He's walked on water. He's multiplied bread. And just about a week or two before this event, he's raised a dead man to life, Lazarus, in a, in a a uh, suburb just outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. And word of that event has circulated and it's created quite a stir, right? Here's a man who seems to check a lot of the boxes that, that predict this coming Messiah to deliver us from our slavery, our pain. On top of that, he's just now coming into Jerusalem on Passover week, the beginning of Passover week. If you know your Jewish history, you know that Passover was celebrated uh, to commemorate God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian oppression in, in a miraculous way. And on top of that, Jesus sends ahead his disciples into Jerusalem to fetch a donkey, which might sound strange to us, but for them, who would have been, again, steeped in the Jewish scriptures, that might have reminded them of a passage out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which will come up on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your, what? Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So as you're kind of thinking about this from their perspective, what do you think their expectations were? Their expectations, I think, were that Jesus was coming in as king, that he was going to immediately go straight to uh, Herod's, Herod's palace, where Pontius Pilate ruled from the, from the praetorium, and clear out the Romans, that he was going to establish himself as a political entity, uh, reestablishing the glory of Davidic Israel and to kick out their enemies, the Romans. So there's this, there's this crescendo that happens in these uh, accounts of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this Monday, what we know of as Palm Sunday. This is kind of the culmination of three years of his ministry. It's coming to a climax. And you could just imagine, you know, I mean, if you've been to like a parade, the Baylor Parade or something, like this is like next level because this is a potential new king coming in to set you free from this very real and present pain. And this builds to, I think, is one of the most anticlimactic verses in all of Scripture. Mark 11, 11, which speaks of the triumphal entry. It says, he, and he entered Jerusalem, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went not to Herod's palace, but he went where? Went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he left the same way he came. Went right back out to Bethany. Now, I don't know about you, but just imagine being on the side of the road and, and celebrating. And, and what they did is they would shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, which was a cry. I know we, we say it in a form of worship, but they were crying out, Hosanna, meaning please save us. Please deliver us. Hosanna, blessed is, is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Speaking of different passages out of Genesis and Isaiah, they were, lay, they were taking off their cloaks and laying them on the ground, a symbol of submission, saying, we will submit to your, your rulership. And they were cutting palm branches, most famously. Palm branches were a symbol of national importance to Israel. The palm branch was on their coins. The palm, uh, palm trees decorated the, the temple. And it was a reflection all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where it all began. And if you read the Maccabees, another kind of Jewish text, not biblical text, but it tells a historical story of a, of a victory of, of Israel over their political enemies, and they celebrated by cutting and waving palm branches. And so they are hailing him as the coming king. He comes in, he goes not to the palace, but to the temple. He looks around, and he goes home. Now, I don't know about you, but I think at best there was confusion, mass confusion, what just happened? That was supposed to be the new day for Israel, and he just went back to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house to, to go to sleep for the night. At worst, I think there was probably murderous anger. This was a massive disappointment. In fact, we see that coming at the end of the week. Well, over the next several days, several strange events happen. Jesus does come back into Jerusalem. He curses a fig tree, which is some metaphor for rebuking uh, the nation of Israel. He goes, again, not to the, temp uh, to the palace, but he goes back to the temple. He clears the temple because they're buying and selling and trading. He sits down. He reasons and argues with the Jewish leaders. And again, I have to just think that the Israelites were thinking, Jesus, they are the enemy. The Romans are the enemy. Why are you getting on to us? We are oppressed. We have pain. We have real issues. And you fast forward to Friday, and those shouts of Hosanna on Monday turn into shouts of what on Friday? Crucify him. Away with him. 
And they see Jesus arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, and hanging naked and bleeding on a cross, and they scoffed at him. He was a phony. He built up our expectations only to shatter them again. And here we are, our circumstances are going to remain unchanged. He was a disappointment. And they missed it, didn't they? They didn't just miss it, they missed him. But I want to suggest that we are in not so different a boat from them. A lot of times we miss him as well in various ways. There should have been a key word in Zechariah 9.9. It's going to come back on the screen among many other passages in the Old Testament to indicate what kind of ruler Jesus was to be, what kind of king he was to be. Do you guys see the key word I'm looking for in that passage? The word humble. That he wouldn't be like the Romans with ruling through coercion and power, but his way would be a subversive way. There were hints and clues all throughout the scriptures, but they, they missed him. And why? Why did they miss him? Why do we miss him so much of the time? Well, a couple of reasons I see in this passage. One is that they had unmet expectations, right? Again, what had the crowd expected? They expected him to be a political ruler, to come in and deal with their external enemies. They had real pain, a couple of years ago, I reached out to a guy who used to be part of uh, this church, and I hadn't seen him in a long time, and I, I texted him, and he texted me back and said, please don't contact me again. Uh, my wife and I have abandoned God after he abandoned us in our need. Now, I don't know what the story was behind that pain, but I think a lot of us can sympathize with it. A lot of people in this room, if we went around the room, even today, you're in tremendous uh, a place of tremendous struggle. Maybe it's ongoing infertility. Where is God? Just seeing people around you get pregnant. It's trying to celebrate, but it's extremely painful. Or maybe you have kids, but one of them or several are away from the Lord, and there's been enmity and bitterness in the home causing tremendous stress. Or maybe it's chronic pain, and you've been in this series. We've seen many people healed dramatically, and yet your healing hasn't come, and you wonder, what's wrong with me? Where is God? Why is he passing over me? Or maybe it's consistent financial setbacks or a toxic marriage or you kind of feel like you're stuck in a dead-end job with an overbearing manager or ongoing waves of depression and anxiety. And there's this kind of plea with God, Hosanna, somebody save me. Where is God? And there's a temptation to go with the pattern of this world and to blame God, to shift the blame. But the title of this message, if you're looking for a title, is Beware of the Crowd. Beware of the crowd. The second reason I think that they missed Jesus, and a lot of us do as well, is that his way is the way of the cross, which is simply too narrow at times. It's too painful. He didn't come to Jerusalem to deal with their external enemies, the Romans. He came to deal with the internal enemy of sin. His way wasn't one, again, of coercion or power. His way was one of sacrifice, humility, and ultimately the cross. And like the Israelites, so much of the time, we want God to deal with our, the source of our pain. And sometimes the answer to that prayer tarries. Sometimes it never comes. And there's a temptation to blame, to push away from God. I know for Steph and I, uh, just one example, it's not, it's not the most acute pain that somebody could experience, but uh, when we graduated from Baylor, we had a lot of school debt. 
and newly married, we were struggling financially to make ends meet. And just every week, every month felt like a pinch. And we prayed earnestly, fervently. And we were working diligently and living simply as possible and, and giving generously even out of our need. But we were praying the big prayers. God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold and all the silver is yours. And we're just waiting for the big check. You know, we're, we're chipping away at it, but we're just waiting. God's going to come through. And a couple of years into that process, and we were weary, and Steph and I were praying together uh, one day. And she prayed a prayer that went something like this. God, I pray that you don't pay off our loans until you fully get our hearts in the area of finances. I thought, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. That's of the devil. We are, it's not a wise prayer. But she was onto something far sooner than I was. Again, I wanted God to deal with the source of the pain. She was looking at God, would you deal with our hearts? Would you use the crucible of this financial hurdle to shape us and to mold us into your image and into your character. Now, if you're new here this morning, uh, you get a pass. But if you're a follower of Jesus, and this is your home church, then this message is directed to me, to you, and that is beware of the crowd and to go the way of Jesus, the narrow way of Jesus. And I want to show you today that to go the way of Jesus is an exceedingly narrow way, which is not a super popular message today. That you're going to have to get used to swimming upstream and standing out, I think uh, increasingly so, as our culture moves further and further away from Judeo-Christian assumptions about, about the world. This is a big deal because I, if you saw the little Instagram post in preparation for this message, I felt like God was working on me as much as I was working on the message and showing me all the different ways that my life is incompatible with the way of Jesus. And this is an ongoing process. It wasn't condemning. It's not condemning. It's convicting. It calls me uh, deeper into the ways of Jesus. And as I look around and look at the state of the church in America, I see a church that is all too often co-opted by the ways of the world. And there's no distinguishing between the church and the world. We look virtually the same in the way we talk, in the way that we think, in the way we conduct business, in the way we raise kids. There's really not a whole lot of difference. And that's tragic because God has called the church to be a signpost to a world that is desperate for hope. We are to reflect the way of the master. He is our savior, but he is also Lord. And he calls us to walk in his way so people can see what he's like. And all too often we blur that image and it becomes indistinct from the rest of the world which doesn't have answers to the deeper issue, the issue of sin and then ongoing conformity to the person of Jesus. Like me wanting God to pay off our debt, the Israelites wanted God to deal with the, is the issue, the, the source of their pain, the Romans. But if you remember... God had already delivered them one time before, actually several times. One time in particular that stands out, they were celebrating Passover. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had gotten the Israelites out of Egypt. But if you know the story of the Old Testament, you know it's a story of the fact that they then could not get Egypt out of Israel. The ways of the crowd, the ways of the world were so deeply embedded in their soul and you have this repetitious cycle of oppression by enemies, God's deliverance, and then they're oppressed again because the change wasn't working down to the inner core of who they were, the issue again of sin. And that takes us to 
our primary text today, which again is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But before we go there, we're going to have a D-School mo- uh, moment here, and we're going to pause. Sorry, Aaron, head fake. We're going to pause, and you're going to turn to somebody, and so far, 20 minutes in or so, what is standing out to you from this message? you got 30 seconds. Ready, go. This is your participation, your engagement. Turn to somebody, 30 seconds. What's standing out to you so far? About 10 more seconds. All right. So this message is the message that Paul is calling the church at Corinth to center back in on. And what I'm issuing this morning as a call for us to center back in on. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is after 14 chapters of dealing with issues and all the divisions of the church. And he's saying, I'm pulling you back into the center. of the, uh, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The Corinthians needed a reminder a reminder of the gospel message, and we need a reminder again this morning. So what is the gospel? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. All right, here's the unpopular message. I've been teeing it up. This is what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church. The issue is not out there. The issue is right here. The issue is not the person sitting next to you. Don't look at them. (laughs) I see that. The issue is right here. Everybody point to your chest. The issue is right here. Paul's saying this is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, what scriptures is he speaking of? Just to fly over, uh, I got to kind of go in the way of Jimmy Seibert here for a moment, go all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And Genesis 2, God speaks to Adam and Eve, and he says, Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He says, You will surely die. And that word that's used there means a physical death. Hebrews, uh, Genesis 3, they disobey God, they eat of the fruit. Now, did they die in that day a physical death? No, they didn't. And you start to see this juxtaposition of justice and mercy being played out right in Genesis 3. They didn't die. Now, there was a spiritual death. There were ongoing, lingering consequences that we are all still, still partaking of. But something did die. And the first blood was shed right there in Genesis 3, uh, verse 21. It'll come up on the screen. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, how do you make garments of skin? You have to slaughter an animal. He had just created all of these creatures and said, this is good. And now he's getting his hands dirty, blood up to his elbows, sewing together clothes because they had tried to cover their shame, but it was insufficient. All of our efforts are insufficient. God had to cover them. Blood had to be shed in order to atone for their sin. 
This then becomes the pattern of the entire Old Testament. This pattern of sacrifices, this system of sacrifices in order to cover the shame of the nation of Israel. First in the tabernacle, then the temple. And fast forward all the way to John chapter 1. You have John the Baptist who comes on the scene. He sees Jesus and prophetically he declares, Behold, the what? The Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Again, should have been a clue to those listening on because a lamb who takes away sin is a lamb that is slaughtered. Fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 5. At the end of time, there's this throne room scene, and one of the elders is announcing, he says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's this, again, climactic moment, and you expect this roaring lion to come out on to the scene. And we were at uh, the zoo last night for the Unbound 5K, and just looking at the lion, you're like, I don't want to meet that creature in the wild. Powerful. But instead of a roaring lion coming out, it says that a lamb as though it had been slain, manifested before them. Jesus would have been justified coming out in a display of power, yet he comes out in a display of weakness, even in the throne room. This is the nature and the character of our God, and this is the message that Paul is bringing the church back to, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You missed him once, church. Don't miss him again. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 53, 4 through 7. Surely he, speaking prophetically hundreds of years before Jesus' coming, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have, all, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. St. Augustine says it this way, late 4th century, early 5th century. He says, the master of humility is Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient even to death, even the death of the cross, echoing Philippians 2. Thus, he does not lose his divinity when he teaches us humility. What great thing was it to the king of the ages to become the king of humanity? For Christ was not the king of Israel, so he might exact a tax or equip an army with weaponry and vis visibly vanquish an enemy, i.e. the Romans. He was the king of Israel in that he rules minds, in that he gives counsel for eternity, in that he leads into the kingdom of heaven for those who believe, hope, and love. It is a condescension, not an advancement, for one who is the Son of God, equal to the Father, the Word through whom all things were made to become King of Israel. It's an indication of pity, not an increase of power. This is the way of Jesus. It's like the Mandalorian moment. This is the way. Beware of the crowd who chases power. The way of Jesus is a narrow way, the way of the cross. And here Paul is saying, don't just believe this message, stand in it. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it admonishes us to run in it or to walk in the way of Jesus. It's not enough just to believe cognitively. I know we call ourselves believers sometimes. That needs to imply followership because just mere mental assent isn't enough. The brother of Jesus, James himself, half-brother of Jesus, says it this way in James 2, 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. The demons know who Jesus is. 
They believe he was the son of God who died, rose again from the dead, ascended to the father and will return again. But they don't follow him. They don't love him. They don't trust in him. Beware of the crowd. Cultural Christianity that claims his name but does not walk in his way. Paul goes on in verse 4. It says that he, Jesus, was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then goes on for like 54 more verses talking about the resurrection. And this then is the hope, right? This is the hope for the people of God. You might be stuck in your pain. You might get a temporary deliverance. But for all of us, one day, Jesus didn't just defeat sin on the cross. He defeated death itself by raising from the dead. There will come a day where he wipes away every tear. There is no more mourning or pain or death. The old things will pass away. Behold, he is making all things new. And that's a little teaser for next week. Jimmy will talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But I want to quote some, uh, some of my friends uh, who pastor our church in Seattle, Andrew and Carrie Bach. They say, in this life, we are not called to have good earthly outcomes. We're called to have extravagant faith. Sometimes extravagant faith leads to good earthly outcomes, but sometimes it doesn't. But that's okay because we look forward to the hope of resurrection, which Jimmy will expound on. So in light of this, Paul ends chapter 15. He says in verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be what? Steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, neighbor, your labor, your neighbor too, your labor is not in vain. Steadfast and immovable implies a current that's coming against you, that's moving in the opposite direction. If we choose to walk in the way of Jesus, there will be a cost, and increasingly so. A cost at school, a cost at work, a cost socially, a cost among our families, and yet this is the admonition of Scripture to stand, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So what is the way of Jesus, just as we round a corner here? So much we could say, we'll just look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. This is the way of Jesus that stands in contrast with the way of the crowd. Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the prideful, or those who have it all together, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I remember being a young man, 17, 18 years old, and I had a, a man in my life who was not a believer, and he sat me down. And he said, listen, Mick, the meek do not inherit the earth. If you want something, you have to go get it. It doesn't matter what it costs at all. At all costs, get what you want. It's the way of the crowd. It's the way of the world. We could talk about the fruit of his spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And again, the expectation of Jesus and the disciples, the apostles who wrote the scriptures, was that as followers of Jesus, his way would be permeating our lives. 
like yeast that works through dough and so that our speech and our thinking and our parenting and the way we conduct ourselves in the marketplace and pay taxes and buy groceries looks like, sounds like, feels like, smells like Jesus. To try to bring this home, uh, I, I interviewed some friends of mine and said, hey, where does this show up in your day-to-day life? Like, where do you see the discrepancy between the way of the world or the way of the crowd and the way of Jesus? And so here are some kind of street-level uh, ideas that came to me that, uh, that we just need to wrestle with as the people of God. Okay, so we're going to compare and contrast the way of the crowd with the way of Jesus. We'll start with business. The way of the crowd uses people to accomplish tasks. The way of Jesus uses tasks to develop people. Comes from my friend Charlie Halley. The way of the crowd is primarily transactional, where people are used to accomplish an end, but the way of Jesus is primarily relational, where people are served. The way of the crowd, the priority is to maximize profit, shareholder return. The way of Jesus, the priority is the glory of God. And listen, if you're a business owner in here, there is nuance to all of this. There is complexity. This is not a kind of a moralistic behavior modification. This is a challenge to evaluate our lives in light of the teaching of the scriptures. The way of the crowd, leaders are inaccessible. They can't be challenged. They can't receive feedback. The way of Jesus, leaders are accessible. The way of the crowd, there's never enough, so the ends justify the means. The way of Jesus, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The way of the crowd, the aggressive inherit the earth. The way of Jesus, the meek inherit the earth. All right. You guys okay to go one more step here? Let's look at parenting. See if we can't offend everybody in the room. All right, the way of the crowd, don't stifle the child's happiness, their emotions, their psychological well-being. It's very popular today uh, among kind of parenting resources and teachings. But the way of Jesus is to train up a child in the way he should go. Discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The way of the crowd, there's no time for spiritual life in the home, our frenetic lives, so much activity, devotionals, worship, prayer, biblical formation, but the way of Jesus, and I'm using the way of Jesus to talk the whole counsel of the scriptures, you shall teach these words diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. The way of the, the crowd, the parent's life is incompatible with the message, their message to their children. Do as I say and not as I do. The way of Jesus, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, just before you throw your shoe, the way of the crowd, don't spank. The way of Jesus, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Am I saying you have to be, you have to spank your kids to be a Christian? I am not saying that. What I am saying is be wary of just going with the momentum of the crowd and be thoughtful and biblical in how you approach raising your children. The way of the crowd, expect school, church, others to disciple my child. The way of Jesus, fathers bring up, and by implication mothers, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The way of the world, the way of the crowd, give a child unrestricted media access. The way of Jesus, the, the call of the parent is to cover, instruct, guide, and train godly discernment. You hanging with me? All right, there's a lot of amens, and some of you are sharpening knives. We've got one more slide, okay? Just kind of a catch-all. The way of the crowd, when it comes to media, Game of Thrones is really popular today with its gratuitous sex and violence. The way of Jesus to dwell on that which is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and worthy of praise. The way of the crowd with our finances, take and hold on to all I can get because you never know what's gonna happen. There's a lot of fear that drives our decisions. The way of Jesus, hold all things in common, giving to any who has need. And just pause it there for a second, Aaron. 
Just want to comment on that last one with finances and brag on our friends, JT and Sarah Lloyd, who many of you know, live in Tijuana, Mexico right now. And uh, when we were paying off our school loans, which I mentioned, they came to us at one point. They were going to join our church planning team in North Carolina. We pastored there for a year. And they sat us down and they said, hey, since we are joining your team, we consider you family. So how much do you have left in your debt? And we told them. And they said, okay, we can't just write a check today. Bummer. Um, But they said, that's now our debt. We are $60,000 in debt along with you. That's the way of Jesus, not the way of the crowd. All right, let's keep going. The clothing, the way of the crowd, to dress in such a way as to best express self. The way of Jesus, don't use your freedom in Christ to cause someone else to stumble, male or female. The way of the crowd with communication, air opinions without discourse. Think social media. The way of Jesus, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The way of the crowd with regard to politics, about self-advancement, self-protection. The way of Jesus, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, one of the reasons I love this body is that there are so many people in here who walk the way of Jesus. It's an amazing, we could tell stories all day long of ways that so many of you have narrowed your lives at great cost to yourself to go the narrow way, to go the way of Jesus. But the call is for all of us to evaluate at a deeper level In what ways is my life incompatible with the way of Jesus? To search the scriptures. And I'm going to throw a discussion discussion question up on the screen. If you go to lunch after this and you're used to kind of evaluating the the speaker, uh, do some self-evaluation as well. In what areas of my life have I gone the way of the crowd instead of the way of Jesus? This would make my day if you uh, just talked about this for a few moments over lunch. All right, what we're not doing this morning, what I'm not going to do is tell you how to do this. How do you walk in the way of Jesus? Uh, Do the discipleship school, all right? We don't have time to unpack it this morning, but I will give you a teaser. In terms of spiritual formation, conforming to the image of Jesus, I think these six components need to be there. Not going to break it down, but this is what the school is all about. You need an ongoing vision, ever-increasing vision of Jesus and his kingdom. A set of the will, an intention of the will to follow him, formed biblically, ongoing daily dependence on the Holy Spirit, godly community, and a practice of the spiritual disciplines. And if that is intriguing to you, join us in the discipleship school. All right, to finish up, a verse from John the Beloved, not one that you're going to find on many bumper stickers. Uh, In a book where he talks about love more than just about any other topic, he says, 1 John 2, 4 through 6, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I already mentioned it, but you're probably aware that kind of the social upheaval and the ideological warfare and COVID and all the challenges of the past few years are sifting the church. If you look at the statistics kind of nationwide, the church is in steep decline. I actually think this is a tremendous opportunity for the church to emerge as a distilled and potent unified entity that reflects and walks in the ways of Jesus. 
that has the ways of the world purged out of us. Because ultimately, we're not alone in this. We have the Holy Spirit, ongoing dependence on the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in his way. And not only that, but we have a community here that is committed to walking in the way of Jesus. And I would challenge us this morning. The scripture says, consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's not enough to remain silent anymore. Call me out, call me up, call one another up to walk in the way of Jesus. It's time to stop kind of playing games and going through the motion because there is literal life and death hanging in the balance. Again, the world needs a church that reflects Jesus because it needs hope, it needs salvation, and it needs truth. And we are called to reflect that to an unbelieving world. So to end our time, I want to actually call us to a physical response. You know, as we were just praying over there uh, before I came up, was reflecting with the Stevan on the fact that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the roaring lion of Judah who's, who's overbearing and demanding and threatening. It's the lamb who was slain, who's accessible, who covers our shame and has made a way for us to enter into the kingdom and to walk in his way. In a moment, I'm going to ask for two different responses. And it's going, to be, it's going to require boldness. Again, beware of the crowd. The first response will be for anybody here who has yet to make that decision to follow Jesus in the first place. And there's something stirring in you, this gospel message. Maybe you're lost, but you just know that something is happening internally and you need to respond. God is drawing you. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to boldly stand up right there in your seat in front of everybody. Take tremendous courage, but this is a safe place just to make a public declaration of, I want to walk with Jesus. I want to follow him. Because again, that message is that God created us to know him, to walk in fellowship with him, to glorify him through our lives. Our rebellion against him has severed that relationship. God's way is the way of the cross, the way of his own blood, his resurrection, and that all who call out to him, who put their faith in him will be saved. Thank you, brother. It's amazing. So if that's anybody else, in fact, uh, Israel, if you could hang off on the keys just for a moment. So I don't want to kind of emotionalize this. This is a sober moment between you and God. Anybody else wants to follow this, this gentleman's lead and just boldly say, that's me. I need to give my life to Jesus this morning. Several of you. Way to go, guys. Takes tremendous courage to stand in front of this many people. Can we just give it up for these these brand new brothers and sisters in the Lord? It's an amazing thing. And you're making a way. If you'd stay standing just for a moment. The second group is for Christians. You'd say that... I'm a believer, and yet I know there are areas of my life that are, that are incompatible with the way of Jesus. I've been walking my own way with regard to business or relationships or uh, my, just the, the ethic of my life. You'd say, just boldly say, make a declaration, I, I want to repent and walk the way of Jesus in these different areas. Would you stand to your feet? Praise God. And we just want to pray. We want to pray. And if you're around them, you can just pray in your heart. If you know them, put a hand on their shoulder. For the power of the Holy Spirit, 
to light on this humble declaration, this courageous declaration saying, I want to go the way of Jesus. Now I need help. I need help. So, Father, thank you for all these brothers and sisters. We ask for your spirit to come on them right now. Holy Spirit, empower us to not go the way of the crowd, but to go the way of the cross. Demonstrate your glory, your goodness, and your power through our lives in Jesus' name. Now, with the rest of us, go ahead and stand up. We're going to respond together. And again, thank you for those who had the courage to stand up. I am so proud of you. It is nerve-wracking to respond in that way. Thanks, Israel. Go for it. We all need God. Every one of us could stand on any given day, right? So as we respond in worship, we're going to make uh, prayer teams available up here. If you need prayer for anything, and it was just too heavy of a moment, you didn't want to stand, but you need, you know you need prayer, or for anything at all, please come down. Let us put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you. But I want to end just praying a revelation of the kindness of God, which leads us all to repentance. So, Father, I do ask for a spirit of wis- wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. I pray that your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness would be on full display to all of us and that you would empower us as a body to be a a flashing neon signpost to the world that God is who he says he is. He is alive. He's made a way to deal with the shame of mankind. And I pray that you would purify us, that we would walk in the way of Jesus by your grace, by your power, in Jesus' name.